Good morning. <laughs> That's not working very well. <laughs> Too much talking is a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad most people got an extra hour of sleep. (laughs) Good morning. If you want to turn to Psalm 135, we'll begin by reading Psalm 135 says, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? (coughs) Father God, we thank you that you are the God who sits in heaven and does all that he pleases. Lord, we we come to you with that confidence this morning that you hold every aspect of human existence in your hand. We never have to fear if our hope and our confidence is in the God of Jacob. Lord, we thank you for that confidence that we can come to you with. We thank you that if God be for us, who can be against us? If we've trusted in Christ, whom you delivered up for us all, we can count on you to graciously give us all things that we need. Lord, we, we thank you, we trust you, we pray that this service this morning would be honoring and glorifying to you. Direct our hearts and center them on Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, announcements, we don't have Bible study this week, but we will uh, the following couple of weeks. Um, and we'll be on the next question in the, the New City Catechism, question 18. Uh, Last week we talked about idolatry, and uh, the next question is, will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? Um, So it would be a good cheery topic. Uh, If you read the the scriptures that go with it, you'll you'll see that. Um, I don't really have anything else for announcements other than if you haven't voted already, you probably should do that this week. (laughs) 
that's that's not really a church announcement though. Um, I, I just I feel like I'm forgetting something, but I don't I can't think of it. Andy shrugs her shoulders at me, so um, if I remember, I'll tell you next week. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll look at First Corinthians eight as we keep reading through First Corinthians. Uh, would you stand as we read God's word? 1 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1, says, Now concerning food offered to idols, and I'm going to pause. Well, part of what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians is he's addressing a series of questions that they have. And so this is the next question that they have. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak. I, I misread that. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You can be seated. As we get ready to, to take communion, I just wanted to think about that last couple of verses there and really the the whole chapter and by so so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak you sin against christ and and one of the things that you notice as you read paul both here in first corinthians and in places like romans is his idea of conscience is almost the opposite of what we think of when we think of conscience when we think of somebody with a strong conscience, we think of someone who keeps a lot of rules, whose, whose conscience restricts them from doing a lot of things. But actually, the way Paul talks about conscience, his understanding of it is, if God didn't tell me not to do it, I have freedom in Christ to do it. I, a strong conscience is one that isn't burdened by a lot of extra rules. But just because I have that freedom as someone who understands that, okay, this meat offered to idols wasn't really offered to an idol because that idol isn't real. So I have freedom to eat it. But if I use that freedom in a way that hurts someone else's conscience and, and causes another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, even though 
for him eating that meat wouldn't have been a sin in and of itself. Doing it in a way that wasn't attentive to how it affected other believers was a sin. And, and, and so what he's pressing on these Christians is, is to not prioritize exercising their own freedom, but instead prioritize acting in love. And so you see in verse 13, he says, For if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Well, we know Paul ate meat. He's not saying, I'll change my diet. <laughs> but what he's saying is, if, if I'm around a person who eating this meat would offend them, I'm not going to do it. Because taking care of their conscience and, and being loving towards them is more important than my own freedom. I'm not going to be hurt either way. I, just, I think that's a really important word for me to hear and for all, all of us to hear is that we, we can think of sin just as this categorical, there's right and there's wrong, and if I don't do the wrong stuff, I'm not sinning. But as Christians, we actually have a positive obligation not to just not break the rules, but to love one another and, and to take care of one another's consciences. And so as we, we approach the communion table and... and Paul tells us other places to examine our hearts as we come to the table. I, I just want to challenge you to think about, like, how could I better love the brothers and sisters around me? How, how, is there any way that I'm offending someone else's conscience in a way that I could just restrict my own freedom and, and it would be solved? Um, so we're going to pray uh, just silently here for a minute or two, and then I'll close and we'll transition to communion. Father God, Lord, we come to you as people who are really concerned about ourselves. And, and Lord, would you rid us of that sinful, self-centered heart? Would you help us to focus, first of all, on you and pleasing you? But would you help us to see that that the, the second great commandment, the first great commandment is to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and the second great commandment is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, especially, we're, we're told in First Peter, to love the brotherhood, to love brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you reveal to us any place in our lives where we're falling short of that, where we're not being attentive to the consciences of other brothers and sisters, and we might be causing them to stumble. Would, would you would you reveal that to us, Lord? Would, would you do a work in our heart to help us to count one another better than ourselves, count others as better than ourselves, and to lay aside our own rights for the good of the body?
Lord, that's exactly what you did in, in putting forth your son to be the payment for our sins. Jesus, you came and you emptied yourself. You laid aside the rights of divinity and went to a cross for us. Would you help us to walk in that same way? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you got your little communion tabby, you want to flick that thing, it should peel up the, the plastic layer there. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you you did allow your body to be broken for us. That, that you went to the cross and in your body not only took the, the scourging of a Roman whip and the nails of a Roman cross, but you bore the wrath of your Father. You bore our sins in your body on the tree. Lord, we, we thank you for that sacrifice. Amen. Continuing on, he says, In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, Father God, we thank you that one day your kingdom will come on this earth. And that promise is secured by the blood that your son shed on the cross. He purchased a people with his own blood, members of the kingdom. Oh, and you you stamped that with your seal of approval. You sealed the promise when you rose him from the dead three days later. Oh, Father God, we thank you for that hope. Thank you that we can gather and on this first Sunday of the month together proclaim the Lord's death. We, we don't just proclaim that with our words. Even in the action of coming together and taking communion, in taking the bread and the cup, we are proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is alive, and that he who died on the cross 
and paid for our sins and purchased a people now reigns in heaven and will one day reign on this earth. And we thank you for that joy and that hope that we can have in knowing that Christ is Lord. Lord, Lord, we, we live in a time when, when people are looking for, and this is all of human time, we're going to see that in the sermon today, but, but boy, we're looking for human lords. And, and Lord, would you help us as believers to, to rightly care about and, and love our neighbor by caring about how the government functions and using our voice in, in the way that we can best? Help, help us to know how to act in these in these things help us to to wisely vote give us discretion in how we do so but lord help us to keep our hope and our joy fixed on what christ has already done and what he's going to do help help us to have an eternal perspective to take seriously our earthly duties and know that this world is passing away lord uh we think of the many people in 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 physical pain right now, uh, and, and in just dealing with sickness. So I think of Gloria's uh, procedure coming up on Tuesday. Lord, would you give the doctors wisdom? Would you guide their hands? Uh, Lord, we just ask for a speedy recovery from that for Gloria. Uh, Lord, we think of the many people we know that have coronavirus. Um, would you protect them, Lord? And uh, we, Lord, we just ask for your, your mercy for our church and for our area and, and for those that we know and love. Lord, I think of the Fisher family this morning. Many of us know uh, Mike and Jody, and with Mike's passing, would you just be with Jody and the kids? Um, Lord, we just ask that your comfort would be known to them, that you would be near to them. Lord, uh, so many things in this life that we don't understand. Why you allow certain pains to come our way. But we trust you. We, we trust that you are a good God, that, that it is good to have you as, as our comfort and our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. We thank you for the confidence that we can have, that you are near to the brokenhearted and that you save the crushed in spirit. Lord, as we turn to look at your word, would you give us eyes to behold wonderful things from it? Uh, would you guide my words, help me to speak clearly what's true to your word and uh, not insert my own opinions? Lord, would you would you work in our hearts conformity to your word, obedience to the word of Christ? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we want to be obedient to your word, Lord. Uh, we know we can only do that through the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. It's not a power that comes from within. It's a power that is of you. And so help us to understand Help us to trust and to believe and help us to obey, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you want to take your Bibles and open them up, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. going to begin by reading the the text. This is one of the last chapters we're going to be able to read the whole thing through in a while, so I'm (laughs) I'm excited about that. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, 
he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel 8 has a particular place in what you might call my scriptural imagination. Uh, When I first started taking classes through the Rocky Mountain Bible Mission, uh, my first teacher was a man named Jim Hunter. And this chapter was really formative for Jim, so much so that he wrote a paper that I stole this title from. (laughs) It's called The King Thing. And he had had us read this paper in a class on hermeneutics, which seemed off-topic. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. So, I mean, we're learning basically how to rightly study the Bible. And and this paper from 1 Samuel 8 focused on our embrace as individuals and as churches on a form of thinking that outsourced responsibility and leadership to figureheads instead of understanding ourselves as personally responsible to God. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like it meshes with what we were talking about, but but I don't think it was off topic. The longer I've thought about the king thing, the more I've realized that how we read and respond to God's word has very real world consequences. 
If we don't respond personally, worshipfully, obediently to the word of God, we are doing ourselves more harm than good. Be doers of the word, James 1.22 urges us, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There, there's a clear warning in this chapter of 1 Samuel, and we need to sit up and take notice of it to understand and to obey. So the first thing we see in the first three verses is a real and present problem. As we enter into chapter 8, we're immediately confronted with an issue. Samuel, the man who's been leading Israel for some 40 years, has gotten old. Uh, in, in view of this reality, he makes what seems to be a logical move. He appoints his sons, Joel and Abijah, to become judges in Israel. He sends them down to Beersheba while he remains at Ramah, so it seems like they're probably splitting up the duties. He's not stepped down from being the judge, but he understands that the workload is too much for him to carry alone, so he's split it up with, with these two sons of his. But the problem Escalates. It's not just that Samuel has become old, but these two sons whom he's appointed as judges, I mean, if they'd been good judges, wise rulers, men who followed in their father's footsteps, then the people could have rejoiced that there was a smooth transition, right? Well, Samuel's setting us up for the future and things are going to be good. But verse 3 tells us, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. And per, they took bribes and perverted justice. And if you remember back to chapter 2, it's like, it's like we're reliving Eli's sons all over again. Chapter 2, verse 12 tells us that Eli's sons were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They were character, characterized by turning aside after gain, abusing people and the sacrifices that the people brought, their sexual perversion with the people at the, the gates of the, of the temple. And now we hear echo, echoes of Hophni and Phinehas here in Samuel's own family. It is interesting here that in the previous case with the worthless sons of Eli, Eli is cast by the author in a negative light. Like, Eli is shown to be a derelict father, and that's why his sons turned out the way they did. He, he didn't correct them the way he should have. But it's not so with Samuel. We have no indication that Samuel was complicit with his sons or that he was aware of their actions and just refusing to deal with it, which provides us with a pretty sobering reality check. It doesn't matter who your parents are. You must choose to walk with God. It doesn't happen automatically. Parents can do all the right things and their kids can still go off the rails. So if you're one of the kids in here, and most of them are mine, Helen and Nora, li listen up. Parent, parents can do all the right things and it doesn't, it doesn't save you. That's not saying that parenting is irrelevant or unimportant. Obviously, if you read the book of Proverbs, you see how important parenting is to God. But God is never going to ask you on the judgment day who your parents were. You must do business with him. The elders of Israel are still left with this problem. What happens when Samuel dies? Are, are these jokers, are Joel and Abijah really the best thing <laughs> that we have to work with? So they come up with a human solution. 
They have a present, real and present problem, so they come up with the obvious human solution. We see that in verses 4 through 9. The elders of Israel come to Samuel, the, the wise heads, the gray beards, they all get together. And the text doesn't make this explicit, but it seems like they come together and discuss how they're going to approach Samuel before they come up to Ramah. Then they come up to him and they announce to him the problem. Your time is, is short. You're getting old, Samuel. You're a little long in the tooth. And, and your, your sons aren't like you. They are not walking in your ways. They don't cut it. So we've got a solution. Not only do we see a problem, Samuel, but we've brought you a solution. Give us a king. Just like everybody else, the nations all have a king. Let us have one, too. Now, sometimes you might wonder, like, where would the people have gotten the idea for a king if they've never had one before? But they just, like it says, they want to be like the nations around them. They looked around. The Philistines, who are always beating up on us, they have kings. The Ammonites, they have kings. The Egyptians, they've got a pharaoh. He's a lot like a king. They've got somebody who's in charge. Let's just quit trying to function as a bunch of, bunch of loosely attached family groups and tribes, and instead let's centralize under this king, under a single figurehead. And it makes, in human terms, it made a lot of sense. Political sense, military sense. Furthermore, the idea of Israel themselves having a king isn't entirely new. Back in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, God gives instructions for how the king is to behave as he serves God's people. So in and of itself, like the desire to have a king is not like some necessarily rotten desire. But the people's reason for wanting a king, God is not a fan of. In, in verse 6, we read that this request displeases Samuel. The thing displeased Samuel, and they said, give us a king to judge us. And that, that seems obvious at first. Like After all, he's the last in this line of judges, and so their request for a king has got to feel like a personal rejection of him and his leadership, which we'll read later on in 1 Samuel. They don't have anything to say against. They literally can't come up with anything against Samuel. He says, I've, I've never taken anything from you. I've never taken anything more than I needed and deserved for the services I provide to you. Samuel has been a good judge, and yet it would seem like a personal rebuttal for the people to come and say, hey, we want a king now. Can you imagine leading a group of people for four decades and then having the rest of the leadership contriving to have you replaced and then asking you to replace yourself? I mean, that's what they're asking. Give us a king. It's not exactly like a retirement party with a nice plaque and some cookies. I had a friend one time, he was working for a small corporation, and he helped them get this brand new store, this brand new hardware store up and off the ground, and he really worked hard for a couple of years to help them get this established. And then they decided, well, now it's all set up. We could do this with somebody making a lot less money to be the manager. And they asked him to hire and train his replacement. That's, that's got to be about how Samuel feels right here. I've done all of this for you. And yeah, hey, could you, could you get somebody else to do this? Because we don't, we don't like how things are going now. God assures Samuel, though, that this is not personal. Or rather, that it is personal, but Samuel is not the person who should be offended. It's not Samuel whom Israel has rejected. It's God himself. 
if you remember back a couple weeks ago when we were in 1 Samuel 7, that's what I think the great theme of that chapter is, is that it is a good thing to have God as your king. It is a good thing for God to rule you. The people flourished when they put away their idols and they prayed rather than searching for their own answers. They didn't have a human king with all of the, the real protection that that would provide, but they didn't need one because God himself ruled and reigned over them. And, and when they lived as if he were their king, things went well. But now they see the end of Samuel's life coming, and they're panicking. God's man is on the way out. His sons stink. We have to come up with a solution. And this is at the heart of what Jim called the the king thing. Instead of seeing our problems, real problems a lot of the time, the people of Israel have a real issue here. Instead of seeing them and turning to God for our answers and for our help, we see the problems and we turn to human solutions. We look to our own strength, our own wisdom, our own cleverness and resources rather than relying upon God. We go looking for a human king to rescue us. This is a pattern the people of Israel have constantly lived in, verses 8 and 9, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. They like to seek after their own way. They're looking for something visible. We talked about that in in Bible study the other day. Like they, the people of Israel, God gives the Ten Commandments. Moses is up on the mountain. And while he's up on the mountain, they go making a visible representation. (laughs) They, they, They make the golden calves calf. Sorry, I was thinking of Jeroboam, multiple calves. (laughs) Yahweh is invisible. He tells us things we don't like, and we think we've got a better way of doing it. We're prone to, to the same, we're prone to the same temptations, even when we think we're serving God. As Dale Ralph Davis puts in his commentary, our proposals and solutions can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. God's response to this is interesting. Instead of refusing their request, God tells Samuel to warn the people. This sort of warning implicitly carries with it the opportunity for repentance and turning around. It's like when a a kid sees you holding a shiny pepper, and maybe it looks good, it looks appetizing, And that kid, maybe they really like tomatoes that are about the same color as that pepper. And and you say, no, buddy, you don't you don't really you don't want this. You're going to sweat. Your mouth's going to feel like it's on fire and then your tummy's going to hurt. He says, give me I want it. And you say, "Okay, here you go. Samuel's about the about to tell the people about the sort of indigestion a king will bring to them. So we see. Samuel's solemn warning in verses 10 through 18. And as you read through these verses, what Samuel delivers to the people of Israel isn't quite what I would be expecting. I would be expecting him to give them a list of injustices and potentially wicked abuses of power that a king could bring. But that's not what he does. Instead, he just gives like a list of mundane, run-of-the-mill, plain-jane king stuff. He's 
He's going to draft men into the military and civil service. You see that in verses 11 and 12. He'll need farmers working not for their own benefit, but to feed his armies. And he's going to need craftsmen to make weapons of war. You see that in verse 12. Well, do you think you're, okay, we're going to lose our, some of our sons to this, but, but maybe our daughters will be able to keep them home and things will be good. Nope, he's going to need women to keep the palace fed and smelling nice. Verse 13. And as for all of your possessions and the fruit of your labor, well, that's what taxes are for. Verses 14 to 17, all of the things that the king is going to take. Samuel piles up a list of consequence upon consequence, but these aren't exceptional things. They're not things that only happen when the king is bad. They're just things that the country is going to need if you have a king. You're going to need an army. You're going to need all these people keeping the palace running. You're going to need taxes to support all of this. You begin to see these things under Saul. You see them start to flower under David, and they really take off under Solomon. David and Solomon, we think of as great kings. And and yet, these same consequences are taking place under these best of kings. Kings have wars to fight, building projects to accomplish. They have to leave their mark on history. And that money and that manpower have to come from somewhere. There's no doubt that they reap benefits from having central leadership. It made keeping a standing army feasible, which made for more felt security. It, it enabled massive building projects like the palaces of David and Solomon and then the temple of God himself, making for more felt power. None of that happens without a central leadership structure. But the people, in clamoring for a sense of peace and security, don't understand the deal that they're making. They don't understand the freedom and the family stability that they could be losing to a monarch. And if you notice the drumbeat in verses 11 through 17, he will take, he will take, he will take. At least six times in these verses I count that 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 phrase is used. The king will plunder the people's possessions for princely profit. And the people won't enjoy this. Verse 18, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And then Samuel adds this devastating conclusion to the warning. The Lord will not answer you in that day. The people will remember after they have a king how good it was when God was their only king. But there's no going back. There's no going back. Verses 19 to 20, we see the people's stubborn rebellion. And as we come to the response of the people, it's, it's worth noting a shift. In verse 4, it's the elders the, the, the leaders of the people who come to Samuel with the request. But Samuel does not go back to the elders in private after he's talked to God. He goes to the people. He goes to the masses. And he says to them in verse 10, is this what you really want? That, that warning, list of warnings he gives is not privately to the elders. It's to the people. And the people as a whole respond to him in verse 19. They respond by refusing to respond. Look at how their response is worded. No, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is not simply a case of stubborn leaders wanting their way. It's the cry of the people. Give us a king and do it now. So, Did you see how they open that response with the word no? It's as if they have their fingers in their ears to Samuel's warning, like 
to God's warning. It's like they're going, la, 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 I can't hear you. I want to do it my way. The people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, verse 19 says. Do you remember, do you remember the end of chapter 3? If you look back at chapter 3, verses 19, and following on to the first verse of chapter 4, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. None of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground because God was revealing himself to Samuel, who then spoke on God's behalf to the people. Which is to say, when Samuel brings this warning from God, the people are either going to listen to the warning or they're refusing to listen to God. By refusing to hear Samuel's voice, they are plugging their ears to the Almighty, which is not a good idea. What's driving their desire for a king? As we said, it's not the desire for a king per se, which God is displeased with. It's their motives. It's what's driving them to look for a king. And so we should ponder their motives for a few minutes. It slices pretty neatly into three pieces. First, they want to be just like everyone else. Second, they're looking for a judge to bring justice. And third, they want someone to go out and do their fighting. The first reason they offer, the the only one brought by the elders in verse 5, is the desire to be like all the other nations. And this might be the most damning of all. We understand it, of course. Like, who doesn't want to be just like everyone else? Who doesn't want to have the same quality of house, the same style of clothes, the same lifestyle as everyone around them? Who wants to be the nation that's seen as the awkward, kingless stepchild? But what had God called his people to be? Leviticus 19, it's actually, I think, four or five different places in Leviticus, but just Leviticus 19, 2 is the, the reference that I normally have lodged in my head for these words. Leviticus 19.2, God says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The very essence of what it means to be the people of God is to be distinct, to be different, to be set apart from the surrounding world. That's what the word holy means in this context. It's We think of the word holy and we think of like pure, not sinful. And that that's certainly true. That's part of what the word holy means. But but at the core of it, it carries with it this idea of a difference, a separation. The Lord is different than the world, and so the people of the Lord should be different than the world. They are emphatically not to be like all the other nations. They're supposed to be different. But the people have this sophisticated objection. We want to be like all the other nations. Like, that's what they want. You're telling us this, God, but this is what I want to do. Look what kings can do. They judge people. Not like your worthless son, Samuel. They pervert justice and take bribes. That's a legitimate problem, right? They should want somebody who isn't going to pervert justice and take bribes. They're sick of it, but... But you got to wonder, do they have eyes in their heads? 
Like what makes them think that a king will somehow be more just than Samuel's sons? A position, a pers- two people with this position of limited power are abusing that power. So let's give someone way more power and it's going to go better. Uh, it's, it's insane. But as Samuel pointed out to them, even in the best of times, when justice is carried out perfectly by a king, the king's probably going to cost you more than the bribes did. Taxes are no laughing matter. And then we come to the third piece. He'll fight our battles, right? He'll go out and he'll lead us into battle. And, and that's, that's true. Absolutely. As we stated early, having a standing army will make them feel a lot safer. But if you fast forward to the end of this book, chapter 31, what happens to the first king of Israel? He dies in battle, he and his sons. The the thing is, when two nations that both have kings line up to battle, one of the kings loses. He might just lose his head. Brothers and sisters, I think we should linger over this temptation for a while. The temptation to embrace Israel's king thing and think that if we have just have the right person in power, everything is going to be okay. And of course, like the first place the mind goes two days before an election is politics, which, I mean, this election, just like every election of my lifetime, is the most important ever. Which I just would mention, like, the first election was probably the most important ever. Like, if you didn't get the right president to start the country, things probably would have gone south. Lincoln, Douglas, that was a pretty important one, too. But they're important, right? That's It's no joke. Elections are important. If we get the wrong person in, the world's going to come crashing down at our feet. If we get the right man in, if we pick the right leader, we'll feel secure and safe. Like, that's the rhetoric you hear, whether you watch MSNBC or Fox News. It's the same story you hear from both sides. They just have different definitions of who the right guy is. This mindset of us versus them is a toxic mindset that teaches us to view those with whom we have political differences as somehow the ultimate enemy. We have brothers and sisters in Christ on both sides of a political aisle. And as much as much as the not even not even a large part most of any political coalition you're part of in this world whether it's a donkey or an elephant or a tree is populated by people who are not friends of the cross both sides of the aisle that's not to say that Christians are somehow aloof from these things or above the fray like oh we don't get involved in that We participate in this world. We have responsibilities to love our neighbor, part of which means advocating for and even voting for the best leaders and laws possible. We have responsibilities as believers. These things are by no means unimportant. But brothers and sisters, we have to always remember that this isn't our ultimate home. We're not looking for an earthly king, whether it's an earthly king with Botox or an earthly king with a spray tan. We're looking for a heavenly king who demonstrated his power, not by promoting himself and running for the highest office possible, but by coming down from heaven's throne and going to a cross. He will come again and he will bring perfect justice, 
perfect righteousness, perfect judgment, and he will make war on all of his enemies. But in the meantime, we as the people of God, our first priority is to love our enemies and to do good to those, pray for those who persecute us. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5.44. Why does he want us to do that? Matthew 5.45 says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So please, if you haven't voted yet, go to the courthouse tomorrow or go down to the bank or the library or wherever your polling place is and vote. Absolutely. But vote knowing that our hope isn't in men. Our hope is in God. And he is just as in control regardless of the outcome. Don't, don't let your perspective on this world be shaped by cable news or social media or the radio. Let your mind be shaped by the all-encompassing sovereignty of God over all things. Another area, it's going to feel like a shift, but another area, perhaps less obvious and maybe more dangerous, where the king thing invades our thinking is right here in, in the church. In politics, we can get co-opted into thinking that there's a particular agenda that God must be for and thus will save us. But in the church, we can adopt mindsets towards ministry that even more tightly resemble the Israelites here. In in Jim, my my teacher's way he he described this, he, he used the idea of surrogates. We want surrogate thinkers, surrogate judges of what's right and wrong. So instead of reading the Bible for yourself and wrestling with what it means, you just count on someone else having all the answers. Someone else is going to do your thinking for you. I can just come to church on Sunday and get what I need. I don't need to think about that stuff for myself. There's problems with that, of course. I don't have all of the answers. And if half an hour on Sunday morning is all of God's word that you're getting, well, that's going to make it hard to think. Think the way God wants you to think for the other 167 and a half hours of the week, right? We can also look to surrogate workers, someone to go out and fight our spiritual battles. We pay someone to do ministry for us, so it's their responsibility, right? We live lives that are busy, and so it's easy to offload responsibility onto those whose job it is. And I wrote that and I thought, that might sound like me complaining. That's not been my experience with you guys. Uh, I think we have a group of people here who are excited to serve the Lord and who do, to serve him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But it's a temptation to be weary of, especially if a day comes when you're paying me more money and I can spend more time doing ministry or we have someone else at some point in the future who's being paid to do ministry. Like that's that's a thing to an idea to be weary wary of to think that a person on the payroll is the one who's supposed to be doing stuff as a pastor it's easy to adopt a surrogate model of how i think about ministry where i would think of myself as the surrogate the one getting paid to do the ministry but you know what's interesting in scripture is that that's not god's model for the church God doesn't appoint a single head over churches and then tell them to run the show. God holds congregations responsible for church discipline. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 5. For the type of teaching they allow, you see that in Galatians 1. 
The whole congregation is held responsible for those things. He gives leaders to the church not to be the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see that in Ephesians 4, 11 and following. My main role here is to help you be better equipped for the service God has called you to. Which is also why we, uh, just on a really practical note, I I keep talking about <laughs> moving towards a meaningful membership and, and praying that God will raise up a plurality of men to be elders and deacons. Because it shouldn't ever be one person in charge, but a group of elders giving oversight to the flock with the understanding that all believers, all members of the church, are part of a holy priesthood ministering the grace of God to those around us by displaying the love of God and sharing the gospel. You, you see that idea of every member being, every every Christian being a priest in 2 Corinthians 5 and in 1 Peter 2. And all that, that might feel like we've wandered off topic, but I don't think we have. Israel's fundamental issue is that they sought their safety in conformity to the nations rather than in submission and trust in God. And we're tempted to do that in the way that we view our country or the way we view our church. And there's other areas. Those were just the two that were like front of my mind as I'm prepping this. We must constantly fight to have our mind shaped by the word of God. And those of you who were at Bible study on Tuesday, I mean, this is what we talked about, right? The question 17, what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. Where should we be looking? Romans 12. Verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writing there, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Finally, as 1 Samuel 8 closes, verses 21 and 22, and when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. As the chapter closes, Samuel takes the words of the people to the Lord, and he's obviously been hoping for a better response. He wants the people to repent. He wants them to change their mind. But God's not, he's not surprised when they don't. God's response to them is give them what they want. This is the, one of the greatest dangers in looking away from God for our answers and looking to ourselves. God might just let you keep looking there. Instead of stopping the people... He simply lets them have their own way. His judgment on them was giving them what they wanted. The old cliche holds true. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Speaking of the people of Israel in the wilderness, Psalm 106 verse 15 says, He gave them what they asked, 
but sent a wasting disease among them. We need to come to God, not with a list of demands, not with a list of worldly to-dos we want him to accomplish for us. We come to him as humble servants, as loving children, certainly bringing our requests, even boldly bringing our requests before him, Hebrews 4 tells us we can do. But we must do so with an attitude that's willing to have even our requests corrected. We must be attuned to God's warnings and careful to heed them. He doesn't give us warnings because he's a killjoy. He gives us warnings to not look other places because he is the only king we need. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, this is this is hard for me to live. It's so easy for me to look other places, to, to rush to my way of solving things. And my ways are not your ways. Your thoughts are not small like my thoughts are small. And so, Father, help us to look to you and to have comfort in your control over all things and help us to, to, to heed the warning here that Israelites had spent years, decades, enjoying your good reign over them and your protection of them on every side, even though they didn't have any earthly reason to see where that was going to come from. They could trust you. And instead, they looked away from you. Lord, help us to always keep our eyes on you and to look to you for everything we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to stand, we'll sing.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the whole fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.